I don't know about you, but in our home, self-help books are helpful. Because I know myself, I need help. That's the biggest part of the problem at the time, right? Hi, my name is David, and I have a problem. That's one of the first steps. But <clears throat> there's all kinds of, of books. You know, self-help outsells just about every other kind of book. And I have just a handful here. I could have gone to my office and gotten a lot more. Creative Counterpart. Becoming the woman, wife, and mother you've always longed to be. Or um, this one here, it's pretty popular, it's been around a while. The five love languages. Do you know what love languages you cherish more than the others? Well, you might need to get the book. Here's another one that uh, Elizabeth and I have gone through recently. This one is for men only. (laughs) And this one is for women only. I tell you, this helped me understand Elizabeth a whole lot better. It also helped me understand that I don't understand. But it helped me understand a whole lot better. Good books. I recommend them. Here's another one. His Needs, Her Needs. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, I'm pretty sure the first chapter is about his needs and the other nine are about hers. (laughs) And I don't think I just fulfilled one of those needs by saying that. In the midst of all those books, I have a question for you because Elizabeth and I, we've been married, what, ten and a half years? But we have some old timers out there. How many of you have been married mm, 40 years? All right, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, wow, that's incredible. Is there anybody else besides the amblers over here? Praise the Lord. Is God good? God is good. So I have a random question for you, and you have to weigh out the odds, and you have to vote for one. Are you ready? Which is more important, getting married, kind of important, or staying married? Now, how do you stay married if you don't ever get married in the first place? How many for getting married? How many of you in here are married? That's what I thought. A bunch of hypocrites in the room. <laughs> How many for staying married? Which is more important? How many of you think it's a stupid question? <laughs> there we go. Both hands. Thank you. That's what I get for asking for audience participation. <clears throat> okay, another question for you. Kind of along the same lines, but a little different. Which is more important again? Yes, I said more important. Coming to Jesus or staying with Jesus? I mean, they're they're both pretty important, aren't they? How many again think these are a bunch of stupid questions? (laughs) 
But if you stop and think about it, no matter how great our conversion experience, we must renew that commitment daily, right? Same with the marriage commitment. It's very popular today to have a big old wedding. It's not quite as popular to stand the test of time. What do they say about half of our marriages fail? No different in the church? I wonder what the statistic is on how many come to Jesus but don't stay with Jesus. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross biannually. Quarterly? Daily. And follow me. And it's easy to recognize in the work world, I mean, no matter how well you shine in the job interview, you're going to have to maintain some integrity, some good work ethic. You're going to have to be plugged in. You're going to have to be on time. And just being able to do that for a week or two weeks or three weeks, you have to continue, right? How about an exercise program? Anybody guilty of, of over New Year's or sometime, you say, okay, I'm going to get into whatever, and you just get out there and you overdo it and you're so sore you don't think you'll ever walk again and you just say, forget it. How good did that do you? Now, you have to make that decision. That's important, but you also have to stick with that decision. Now, giving birth to a child, that's a pretty significant time in a married couple's lives. But are you done raising the kid once the child's born? <laughs> oh, no. Are you done when you have like a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a almost three-year-old and a six-month-year-old? Some of you parents of teens. <laughs> no. Right? You have to be in for the long haul. And don't get me wrong, the birth is important, but the continual commitment. How many of you thought you'd never make it through registration day at school or at college and the lines and on? I mean, pretty important. If you're not registered, we don't have a place for you. But just getting over that hurdle doesn't mean you're necessarily going to graduate either. So I submit to you this morning, the same way being a Christian involves a whole lot more than simply being converted. Now, don't get me wrong. Conversion is important. It's vital. It's necessary. But this morning, I want to look at Acts chapter 22 as we look at perhaps one of the most dramatic conversion experiences in all of Scripture. And you know I'm talking about Paul's conversion experience. We have this accounted three times in the book of Acts. And on this particular occasion, Paul has returned to Jerusalem, he's been in the temple, he's teaching, and he is accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And so some other people get the crowd all stirred up, they get all angry at Paul, and they want to kill Paul for allowing this to happen, for, for bringing this upon them in their holy temple. And so they're trying to kill Paul, and there's this whole ruckus that has been created, and then the Roman guard finds out about it. And so he takes action right away, and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, 
verse 3, he, he comes down, he seizes Paul with all of his guards, and just as they're about to haul Paul away, he starts to speak. He asks if he can speak to the crowd, and they grant him permission to speak. And so here Paul is telling his story. Acts chapter 22. Did I say something else before? Y'all know better. 22, sorry. Acts chapter 22. I'll wait just a little while longer. Acts chapter 22, verse 3. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Then he, Paul, said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicily. But brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. I persecuted this way, those that followed Jesus Christ, to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. And also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus. Now, Damascus was about a 140-mile walk away. We're talking somebody that's very zealous. That's like going all the way to Knoxville. You've cleared out Asheville and the surrounding areas, and now you're going to go all the way to Knoxville, and you're going to take care of them over there, too. So he went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And then verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Here we have perhaps one of the most dramatic conversion stories in all of Scripture. And Paul is left asking, what shall I do? And he says, go to Damascus. And you know the story, with incredible faith. Ananias comes and restores his sight. And he has this message for Paul, verse 14. Then he, Ananias, said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, if being a Christian only meant being converted, then we would be done with this story. But just like there's more to being married than getting married, there's more to being employed than getting hired. There's more to children than just giving birth to them. I would submit that there is more to being a Christian than simply being converted. It involves what Jesus is saying through Ananias right here. You will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen 
and heard. Is it possible in some of our churches today, certainly not this church, but is it possible that we are converted and content? We've come to Jesus, our name is secure on the church books, we pay a faithful tithe, and so we kick back in smug complacency. Is it possible that God is calling us to more? There's no doubt in my mind that when a person goes through a life-changing experience and is converted, that there is celebration in heaven beyond anything that we probably can imagine. It's a highlight. That's just the beginning of what God wants to do through you and through me. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? But I believe he does. God wants us to be more than converted. God wants us to be his witnesses to all of what we have seen and heard. So what had Paul seen and heard? I mean, ultimately, that's your testimony. It's yours. What have you seen? What have you heard? Well, this is what it says about Paul. Verse 14, God of our fathers has chosen you, Paul, that you should know his will and see the just one, that's Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. God says, I've chosen you. It's not about your gifts. It's not about your abilities. It's not about what you have to offer. The bottom line is, I have chosen you. Period. To know his will. You think God wants us to know his will, or does he want us to just fumble around in the dark aimlessly? No, he wants us to know his will. His perfect and pleasing will, his special purpose for your life that is unique to you in this time, in this place. He's chosen you to know his will and to see the just righteous one, that is God, and to hear the voice or words from his mouth. In a nutshell, God had chosen Paul and God's chosen us to first see and to hear God and then to simply be witnesses of what we have seen and what we've heard. Pretty simple, isn't it? Now, we hear this idea of being a witness an awful lot. We're going witnessing today. Did you witness to that person in the airport? Were you a witness to your coworker? Oh, I got a chance to witness. Those aren't bad things to say necessarily. But what is at the, the core of this idea of witnessing? Is it just a hat that we put on? Does it say witness across the top? And that's maybe the only time that we smile and when we're cheerful. And at the end of the day, we just kind of take it off and sling it off the couch and say, that's exhausting. I'm not going to put that on for a while. Is that how it works? Keep your finger there in Acts 22. We're going to come back to that. 
but we're also going to go to Luke chapter 24. Whatever I say after this, disregard, but this time it's Luke 24, verse 46 to 49. Luke 24, same writer, same author, Luke the physician. End of the book. Jesus has already died. He's already been raised. And this is in so many ways the commission we have here in Luke. Verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in or at Jerusalem. So this is kind of a review for the disciples. He said this over and over and over again that this would have to happen, that this would take place, and on the third day, and they scratch their heads, and they don't get it, they try and talk him out of it. But finally now, on the other side of that experience, they're having these aha moments. And Jesus' time on earth is limited, and so he's trying to really hit this home. And so he tells them, verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. Of what things? Everything he's just listed before this. The things that you yourself have seen and heard and participated in. That's why they call you an apostle. And so because you are a firsthand witness, because you've seen it, because you've heard it, firsthand you will be my witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So you don't go out alone. You don't have to do this whole thing all by yourself. Not at all. In fact, you're powerless without the Holy Spirit. But you're going to be my witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit of what you have seen and heard. He's got to make it clear. Desire of Ages, page 118, says that this commission was drilled into them, if you will, again and again and over and over during those 40 days that Jesus was with them. In fact, we have it again in the book of Acts. This time we're going to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we see something very similar just before Jesus' ascension. And you know this verse. It's a well-known verse as well. Same two major points that we just read in Luke. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall or will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what is a witness? Well, Acts 22 gives us some pretty clear ideas of what it is to be a witness. 22.15, we read it already. For you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. So the definition of a witness would be somebody that has a first-hand account. Does that make sense? I mean, if, if some crime took place 
And if you are the one trying to free somebody or convict somebody, you're looking for witnesses. And what makes a good witness? Well, I want somebody that's comfortable up front. I want somebody that's eloquent with words. They need to be smart. Attractive would be good. College degree, perhaps. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want witnessing experience. Is that all commentary? What makes a good witness? They've seen something, right? They've witnessed something firsthand. They didn't hear it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who told their barber, and then they, it's all mixed up and confused. That's, that's not going to do any good here. But if you were there at the right place at the right time, that's what they do. They try and establish credibility at the beginning. Mr. Jones, where were you on Thursday night at 5 o'clock? Strawberry Hill. I don't know. So they've seen something, they've heard something, and the more they've seen and the more that they've heard, the better the witness. I think all too often we focus more on witnessing for Christ as opposed to first witnessing Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because what makes a powerful witness is somebody who has seen and heard something firsthand. Experienced it for themselves. Not through somebody else. Not second, third, or fourth hand. But for themselves. Luke 24, you'll be my witnesses. I'll send power from on high. Acts 1, you'll be my witnesses. We'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Unless we have first witnessed Jesus firsthand and seen his love and his power and his compassion, unless we've heard his voice in the morning, unless we've experienced him for ourselves, spending time alone, beholding him, seeing him, listening to what he has to say, time on our knees, until we've been clothed with power from on high and are imbued with the Holy Spirit. Frankly, we have nothing to witness about. Is it true? And sometimes in the name of witnessing, we can do more damage than good because, honestly speaking, we haven't been connected with God in some time. So we connect some of these cliches and some of these phrases and we get kind of preachy and we feel like maybe we've witnessed. But there's no conviction. It rings hollow. And maybe they even ask you, so what has Jesus done for you lately? Oh, and so we run back and we talk about our conversion story. Well, that's great. That was 10 years ago. Is that all he can do for you? Is that all he's done for you? I didn't think there was much in this Jesus thing anyway. Until we first seen and heard Jesus, we have nothing to witness about. First and foremost, we must, if we don't witness him, we're just like clanging cymbals, right? 
Paul understood that himself when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. To be effective witness for Christ, we must die to him every day. Surrender our time and energy over to him. Allow him to set our agenda. Did Jesus understand this? John 15, 27. You will bear witness for you have been with me. If you're going to witness, you're going to have to spend time with me. If you're not going to spend time with me, I really wish you wouldn't go out and try and do something. The bottom line is simply, we cannot be an effective witness for Jesus unless we have been with Jesus. The story is told of an elder in, in the church. His name was Jim, and he was the overseer of new people that would come, and, and he had a real winsome way and could connect with people well and different things, and, but he really had a challenge on his hands this time. A Vietnamese couple came, and there was this huge language barrier. And so they could speak some English, but it was very broken English, and he couldn't speak any Vietnamese. And he tried to learn a few key words, and they tried to learn a few key words, and they were slugging through the Bible trying to make sense of this because they had never heard this whole idea before. Everything was new to them. And finally, after much frustration... The elder was about to give up. He says, we're just going to have to wait until they understand better English, I suppose. I don't know what else to do. To which one of the Vietnamese in the family said, is your God like you? Because if he is, I want to know him. Jim thought for months he hadn't been communicating the gospel that he hadn't been connecting, that he hadn't been making any inroads. Lo and behold, the, the biggest witness was not with his words, but with what? His actions. His life. How he treated people. Oftentimes we think that to witness means to use our mouth, Right? So we have to talk to somebody on the airplane and all those kinds of things. We can witness to people with our mouth. But I think the overwhelming majority of the time, our most powerful witness is how we just live our life. Our actions, our responses, where we go, where we don't go, what we do, what we don't do. You don't think people are watching? They're watching. I remember as a kid, I was like 10 or 12 years old, and, and we had a family friend that went way back, and they had kids the same age as we were, and we all went all the way up to school together. And um, I remember at one point, I don't know how it came up or, or how we were talking about this, but he started talking about my father. Now, my father's a minister, and, and he preached in the church that he attended and all those things, and he said, you know, I have so much respect for your dad. Cool. And he says, you know, but you know what? The thing I respect the most about your dad is not because of any sermon he's ever preached, but it's because of how he lives his life and how he loves his family. And he says, to me, that's the most powerful sermon your dad will ever preach. 
And at the age that I was, I thought, no way, really? But we know that to be true, don't we? We think, oh, until God gives me a pulpit, you already have a pulpit now. Have you witnessed Jesus? Do your actions reflect time spent with him? So going back to Acts chapter 22, verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so in Paul's account, he returns to Jerusalem after his conversion. He goes to the temple. He falls into some vision. And the Lord says, leave Jerusalem because they won't accept your testimony. And then Paul tries to talk God out of it. Verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Do you ever feel that way? You pray for the Lord to give you direction. You pray for him to show him your will. He gives you an assignment, and you say, you've got to be crazy. You want me to go where and do what? I mean, Lord, you don't know my past. You don't know my background. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what people think of me in that place. This is never going to work. And look at the Lord's response. Then he said to me, depart. Many of your versions just have a simple go. For I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. In the common vernacular, go. I'll take care of the details. Have you noticed when God says in Scripture to go, in the Bible it means literally, don't worry, trust in me, I'll take care of you, you just go. So we mean as parents too when we ask our kids to do something, right? Trust me, I have your best interest at heart. Just do this and you'll be better off. Just go. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord told Abraham to leave everything behind and go to the land I will show you. Can I see it now? Just go, I'll show it to you. Exodus 6, 11, God had heard the groanings of the Israelites and the Lord told Moses, go, tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Yeah, but, 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 but go. Jeremiah 2, 2, when the Lord gave Jeremiah a message, he said, go and proclaim to the hearing of Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 1, 11, when God calls Ezekiel, he tells him, go now to your countrymen in exile. Jonah 1, verse 2, God told Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach. Acts 9, 15, when Ananias was afraid to go and speak with Saul, 
The Lord said, go, this man is my chosen instrument. God, you're crazy, you don't get it, you don't know. Let me inform you, let me tell you what's really going on. Go, I'll take care of you. Again and again, when God says go, the promise is that God will be with them. And so when God says go, you go. You don't weigh out the options. You don't figure out the pros and the cons. You don't question, is this the best thing? Because along with God's command is his promise. Go, I alone will care for you and provide for you and make a way for you. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples. And he backs that up with the saying, surely I am with you. How much? Always. And so again, Acts twenty two twenty one. depart, go, for I will send you. Your job is to go, to trust in me, to move forward in faith. I will be the one that will decide who you will witness to. I will be the one to provide the opportunity. I will open the door. You simply obey and go. You know, Russia has come an awful long way. Currently, the 22nd Winter Olympics is being played even now in Sochi. Shame on you for checking on your sports score or winner or player while we're in church. Perhaps some of you watched some this week. But in 1970, the USSR, Private Ivan Moiseev was only 18 years old. And communists were calling him to headquarters for talks to re-educate him, if you will. They were going to talk him out of his faith in one way or another. In simple terms, we're going to break this kid. He thinks there's a God. And so when he was called, he knew something was about to take place. And as he walked... Ivan heard this voice in his head. It wasn't audible, but he had this impression. Ivan, go, don't be afraid. I am with you. And so he knocked on the door of the major. Come in. Nothing but intimidation in the entire meeting. He was the head of the political directive committee, and he was interrogating Ivan up one side and down the other. He belittled him, he mocked him, he yelled at him, and he threatened him to give up his faith or else, until finally he had had enough, and in his rage, he said, all right, fine, have it your way. He says, tonight, starting at 10 o'clock, which was just a few minutes away, you're going to stand out by the flagpole. Now it's winter in Russia, 13 degrees below zero. Winds howling. You'll stand out of the flagpole until you decide, like the rest of us, that there is no God. Stay out there all night if you want to. I don't care. You're dismissed. So Ivan turned respectfully to leave the office, and as he was leaving, he said, Oh, and one more thing. 
You'll stand at the flagpole in summer attire. That is all. And so at 10 o'clock, with the wind blowing and howling, he comes out. Instantly, goosebumps in this little t-shirt, these shorts, and sneakers. And he stands out there at the flagpole, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying. He's thinking about that impression he had earlier. Ivan, go, don't be afraid, I'm with you. 30 minutes passed, 45, an hour, felt like hours and hours, until about 12.30 that night he was interrupted by three officers, complete with the Russian hats, you know, and everything with, with fur and these big parkas, and you could see the wind blowing in all the fur, and he's just there shivering. And they say, Private? Ready to come in? Yes, sir. You going to deny your God? No, sir. Fine. And they turn and walk away. Wind still howling. Not until 3 a.m. did they let him come inside. This practice continued. Night after night after night for 12 consecutive nights. 18-year-old young man standing in the cold. They also tried refrigerated cells. They also put him in a special rubber suit and they'd fill it with air and somehow compress his lungs and so with every gasp for air they would just push in more and more and more. And he endured these practices for two years. And finally, at age 20, he knew that the communists would kill him. He knew it was coming. And so he wrote a letter to his parents on July 11, 1972, to let them know, you're not going to see me again. And a few days later, they returned his body. He'd been stabbed six times near the heart. Signs of beating over his entire body, especially around his head and his mouth. And then they had drowned him. His commander said, Moziev died with difficulty. He fought with death. But he died a Christian. In a letter he wrote to his parents a month before his death, Ivan wrote this. My dear parents, the Lord has showed me the way, showed the way to me, and I have decided to follow it. I will now have more severe and bigger battles than I have had till now. But I do not fear them. He goes before me. Do not grieve for me, my dear parents. It is because I love Jesus more than myself. I listen to him. Though my body does fear somewhat or does not wish to go through everything, I do this because I do not value my life as much as I value him. Would you be proud of that, young man? And I will not 
await my own will, but I will follow as the Lord leads. He says, go, and I go. End quote. Do you suppose he had witnessed Jesus? Had he seen and heard him firsthand? Was Jesus real to him? Are you willing to go wherever God asks you to go, no matter where he decides to send you? Are you willing to trust him fully? I believe Ivan had witnessed Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit in an incredible way. And Ivan's faith and love in Jesus was so strong, he was willing to be a witness unto death. Did you know in, in the Bible, in the Greek, the word for witness is martos? It's where we get our word martyr. So really in the scripture where you see the word witness, it could just as well read martyr. And when you see martyr, it could just as well read witness from the same root word, martos. So in Acts twenty two fifteen, when he says, for you will be his witness of all that you have seen and heard, martos. Acts twenty two twenty, your martyr, Stephen, same word, your witness, Stephen. And it's throughout Scripture. Witness in the Greek language is much more than some pretty cutesy little cross stitch with flowers around it. Witness in Scripture has a depth to it that I'm willing to submit to God, to be faithful to God, even unto death. Does that mean a little bit more than in our English language sometimes? I could tell you experiences about each of the apostles and how they were faithful to death. Matthew was killed by a sword. Mark was dragged through the streets. Luke was hanged. John, they tried to boil him in oil, but he was delivered. Peter was crucified upside down. James was thrown from a pinnacle in the temple. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Bartholomew was whipped to death. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was stabbed by a spear. Jude was killed by arrows. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And Paul, well, he was tortured and beheaded as well. But it's in Jesus that we find the ultimate witness. Every second he was witnessing to others of the love of God, teaching them, healing them, caring in such a powerful way that lives were changed. So dedicated was his life that he could say, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. How many of us could say that to our neighbor? And there's no greater witness than Jesus. Why? Because I believe he walked closer to God than anyone has since. He spent all nights in prayer. He got up early in the morning while it was still dark and prayed and connected with his heavenly father. He submitted fully to the father. He understood that to be a powerful witness, you have to behold God. 
to see and hear him daily throughout the day. You don't work on your witness, but rather you let your light shine. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus could not see past the portals of the tomb and he's pleading with God, he still submitted to the Father and said, not my will, but yours be done. And as a result, Jesus was a witness, a martos, even to the point of death. What are you saying, Dave? Are you calling me to die for Jesus? Yeah. I believe we should. May not be a physical death, but it may be a death of a lot of other things. My wants, my desires, my impulses, my picture of how things are going to be and play out. Ultimately, I need to be willing to put self to death and every day be raised in newness of life, to be willing to be a witness for him at the cost of what others may think, whatever my reputation may be in the community, however I may be perceived at work or with my friends or whatever else, I don't care about anything else as much as being faithful to Jesus Christ and being his witness. To be willing to go and find happiness and peace and unspeakable joy in him. Because I promise Jesus will give you a hundred times more than anything you could possibly give up. He will. In fact, Jesus himself makes that promise. And three times in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time and the age to come eternal life. He says, you think you're giving up big now. You're going to receive a hundredfold more if you just trust me, if you just remain faithful to me. So next time you hear the word witness, I want you to think, have I witnessed Jesus today? Have I seen him? Have I heard his voice in the morning through his word? Have I submitted my life to him in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if you have, your life will be undoubtedly, will be a witness, a testimony to others. Because all you do will be a response, a testimony of what you've seen and heard of Jesus Christ. As we see him, we will be changed. And the overflow of that change will be our witness for him. The outflow of that change will be a humble surrender to his call to go, whatever the direction, whatever the outcome. The outflow of that change will be a willingness to be a witness, our martyr for him, to be faithful unto death, socially, economically, or even physically. The outflow promises some wonderful things. Because out of that decision, out of that commitment, out of that surrender, 
we find purpose and meaning and direction. To be part of something bigger than ourselves that has a reward beyond the here and the now. The outflow promises to bring inexpressible joy and happiness that the world does not know or cannot give. The outflow promises to bring contentment and fulfillment and a blessed peace and assurance. And if you could put that in a pill, they couldn't keep it on the shelves. He has promised, I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. And so I challenge you this morning, above every other thing on your agenda, take significant time to witness Jesus Christ. And then just simply be a witness of what he has done for you. Let your light Shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Lord, more than anything, we want to be faithful and true witnesses of you. To see and hear you every day. We want to witness your love, your faithfulness, your compassion firsthand. To be filled with your Holy Spirit in such a way that we cannot help but let it shine to those around us. Lord, help us to daily submit to you, to trust that you will be the one to send us, that you will provide the outcome. Lord, give us the courage to go wherever you ask us to go, to do whatever you ask us to do, and to submit to you in all things so that truly we can be your witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.